Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. As you know, this show is a partially amphibious member of the Agora Podcast Network. Amongst our bevy of fantastic shows, one of them is clearly the History of China podcast by Chris Stewart. It is a narrative history of a place called China. And if that sounds interesting to you, you can do far worse than checking out the History of China podcast by Chris Stewart. Actually, it, it is quite wonderful. And they're currently doing a rundown of the Yuan Dynasty, which is the Mongols. So that's a lot of fun. And I sing a song in one of the episodes. So check that out. Today, we have several patrons worthy of our honor and praise. First up is Duncan, who shall be known from henceforward as Sir Duncan, not my cat. After Duncan, we have Eric, who shall be known due to his great, great services to the royal family as Duke Eric, official court podiatrist. And finally, we have someone who has requested the title of Prince. Prince Trom, who shall be known henceforward as Prince Trom, Royal Quartermaster of the Spare Electric Toothbrush and Sundry Replacement Parts. Duncan, Eric, and Trom, thank you so, so much for your fiscal donations to the continued well-being of the realm. If you wish to join their surried ranks, head over to the website, wittenberg2westphaliapodcast.weebly.com, and go to the donate page. You can also go to the store page, but I am going to be changing that over. Also, I realized upon listening to several other people's podcasts that it might be a good idea for me to include links in the show notes. I hadn't thought of that before. I'm brilliant. Anyway, several episodes ago, we thanked John, the official geographer of the Dyslexic Brotherhood. Now, John actually just got in touch with a very important point. Now, uh, a little bit of an editor's note here. Uh, the parts where it's really sarcastic, that's me. The parts where it's gentlemanly and wonderful, that's John. Uh, I really don't know how else to convey the meaning of this letter. Okay, John says, As a resident of Southwark, pronounced Southwark and not Southwark, like Ben the Idiot, I am near the old stews and even the shard. The stews were controlled by the Bishop of Winchester, not London. The whole point was that the south side, with bear pits, theaters, brothels, etc., was outside city limits. Winchester is a town near the south coast, but the bishopric was ancient and wealthy. It was where the early all-England Saxon kings were crowned, so they had a palace, a jail, and a lot of brothels along the river, hence the term Winchester geese for the prostitutes. End quote. I should have done an open quote earlier, but let's just move on. John is absolutely right. I screwed up on a couple good points, not the least of which being the pronunciation of Southwark. Southwark. But I think the more important one being that the Bishop of Winchester, not London, controlled the stews, which was sort of London's red light district, if you will. And 
like John said, the reason that this was able to sort of happen was that there was a illegal jurisdiction change when you crossed the river, and the bishops were able to take advantage of that and make a lot of money off of vice. Which is kind of funny, but also the broader point that I was making in that episode is that, you know, if it wasn't the bishop, it would have been someone else. All the cities in Europe basically had this kind of thing going on. Just over the border, or just outside the walls, there was some kind of red light district that would turn into a legitimate district of its own. Anyway, thanks very much to John, the official geographer of the Dyslexic Brotherhood, for his editorial notes there. He was, of course, absolutely right. Anyway, thanks to John, and let's move on. In the European Middle Ages, society was composed of three separate yet equally important parts. Those who prayed, those who fought, and those who worked. But this is not their story. The 1300s, the city of Verona in Italy. Presumably in some sort of legitimate legal setting, someone said this. Item. We order that no merchant, woman, or other woman selling wine or anything edible may or ought to spin or wind thread sitting or standing at their station or places where they sell their wares or wine under the said penalty of tens. And whoever is the accuser, half the penalty will go to the accuser, the other half to the commune of Verona. Item. We order that any woman should not go spinning to La Roca, that is, a rocky promontory on the lake outside Verona nor winding thread through the city and towns of Verona and its district. And if any woman does otherwise, let her be punished for each offense with a fine of tens. And whoever is the accuser, half the penalty will go to the accuser, the other half to the commune of Verona. Item. We order that no person ought to comb her hair standing in doorways or outside her house under the said penalty. And in these matters, whoever is the accuser, Half the penalty will go to the commune of Verona, the other half to the accuser. Quote from the 13th century law code of the Italian city of Verona, translated by Emily Amt and read from Women's Lives in Medieval Europe, a source book edited by Emile Amt and read by Nia Clark of Black Wall Street 1921, a new podcast on the Agora Podcast Network. Everyone's right and no one is sorry. Start and the end of the story From the sharks and the jets To the call in the morning Greetings! My name is Benjamin Jacobs, your host as we travel in the vague direction of Wittenberg and Westphalia, the Wars of the Reformation. This is episode 67, Women Part 3, Welcome to the Working Week. In these final episodes of our coverage of the Society of the Early Middle Ages, we are addressing groups that do not fit neatly into the three-way class structure that thinkers of the Middle Ages used to characterize their own society. In the last three episodes, we have talked about women, the broad theories of women, and the ways that male attitudes towards sex and the Eve-Mary dichotomy were reflected in the status of prostitutes, nuns, and other women in between. Today, we will be discussing the surprisingly simple story of women in the economy. Now, I say simple because usually when I talk about this stuff, I go through this whole journey of saying that everything you know is wrong, but then also some things are right, and everything is really complicated. But this time is different, because basically today I'm going to argue that everything you know is wrong and then just stop there, and eventually end the episode. But it's probably going to take us an hour to get there, so let's get going. But first, please allow me to elaborate. 
The stereotypical view of women in the Middle Ages is one set in place by romantic storytellers of the Victorian age, which saw women either just sitting home twiddling their thumbs and thinking about holy things, or at least performing tasks that were entirely different from those performed by men. Historians of the era characterized the split between men's work and women's work as those tasks that happened inside the home, and thus were the providence of women, and those that happened outside the home, and thus were the main tasks of men. Today I'm going to tell you about how, with the possible exception of warfare and the priesthood and one or two other minor exceptions, women did everything that men did, at least some of the time. While the Middle Ages did have a concept of gendered work, it was a social construct in an era of extreme social balkanization. As a result, it's almost impossible to actually generalize any task being entirely men's or entirely women's work across the entire geography and time span of the Middle Ages. Things went in and out of the conception of work. Now, that may seem like an extraordinary claim, and I will be presenting evidence, but let's just start with some scene setting. First off, call to your mind everything we've talked about previously about the economic structures of the early Middle Ages. First, you have the nobility, who supposedly exist to allow men to go out and fight, but who on a basic level are a small collection of family groups exerting political dominance over a potentially restive countryside through a combination of physical force and negotiation. Legal institutions were weak, and wars were common, so the men were often away, fighting, leaving the uh, homestead, the estate, in the hands of... who? And if the men died in war, this situation could become an extended one. In fact, most of the evidence we have from this period indicates that this was so common that it statistically impacted the difference in life expectancy between aristocratic women and aristocratic men to a very large degree. Like, yes, women live longer than men now, but that's like by one or two percent. We're talking much more than that. The clergy we spoke about last time out, so I won't be discussing them today at length, but we should all understand that the church did think women were capable of salvation and theoretically valued nuns as holy people. Though it didn't trust them to be priests, women had a role in religious life. In the re-emerging towns of this period, many men, such as merchants or traders, were out on long trading expeditions, leaving their households under whose control? Especially in the context of very turbulent economic conditions, you know, households had to do a lot to survive. Guilds were set up with a variety of goals in this context, but amongst them was the creation of economic stability for the families of the tradesmen. And of course, then we come to the poor and the peasants, who were almost always on the edge of starvation. One bad harvest or overly close military campaign or siege of their town could mean the difference between having enough or going hungry. While many modern observers of peasant populations in particular slander them as lazy, and certainly some observers from the Middle Ages said this as well, it was often coupled with an exhortation that there was always something that needed doing on farms to help better prepare for the lean times ahead. Even if the crops were planted, equipment had to be maintained, things could be forged from the forests, animals had to be taken care of, etc. And it's not like poor men were immune to violent death due to poorly considered military expeditions or violent sports. Just like the aristocracy, boys will be boys. Just because the peasants didn't hop to when asked to complete tasks for other people didn't mean that they were actually lazy or unaware of the important variety of tasks that needed to be performed on a farm. When it was about their own survival, you can be pretty sure that they were aware of those tasks. So in this context, where the vast majority of the population lives constantly on the edge of starvation, while the remainder of the population has men constantly engaged in ill-advised violent activities, what is the likelihood that in medieval society, or really in any pre-modern society, 50% of the population who was birthed would simply nope out of the economy? Just like, sorry, I can't do anything today, I have too many X chromosomes. 
My weak and fragile womanly limbs simply can't be used for anything other than reading the Bible that's too expensive for anyone other than royalty to own and eating bonbons that haven't been invented yet. I'm being sarcastic. I have a concern that some of my sarcasm may not come through in this episode, and someone may think that I'm being a misogynistic jerk. I'm just a little bit... Okay, anyway, I think you get what I'm saying. Obviously, the idea that women weren't participating in the economy is absurd on its face, and always has been. So, to deal with this fact, the traditional narrative built up by male historians brought out the idea of gendered work roles. Women were obviously doing something with their time, but it was all petty and pointless things like raising children, cleaning the house, sewing pretty things to wear in their hair, and gossiping about shoes. To be fair to all these historians, and as I said earlier, there were gendered work roles to some extent in the Middle Ages. The idea of inside work and outside work was reported by church chroniclers and other people, and this idea was reflected in the kinds of activities the church allowed nuns to do, for example, often to the detriment of the ability of nuns to survive institutionally. But there's a bunch of problems that this broader concept of gendered work roles leaves out. Uh, and the first one is just going to be a rant, so just be prepared. I'm already ranting, but here's more. So first off, let's remember this is a pre-modern era. Textiles may be nearly disposable today, at least in industrial countries, but they are extremely important if you want to do things like stay alive, particularly in Northern Europe, and mass production didn't exist yet. It's also worth saying that the materials that textiles are made of are not grain, and so the entire economy wasn't devoted towards making them, which made them more expensive. So the creation of the garment was necessary to life, very difficult, time-consuming, and utilized resources like flax and wool that were expensive. Now, we don't have good records of cost for the early Middle Ages, but I've seen records that indicate that a shirt for a laborer in the 1500s cost somewhere between 3 and 10 days wages. And that seems similar enough for our purposes to make my point, and it's similar enough to what secondary sources have reported about similar goods for earlier periods. So why is this important, 3 to 10 days wages? Well, let's just extrapolate this out. Clothing, which is a thing that keeps you alive, was basically so expensive that there couldn't be a real market for it. In a context where most of the population is just bone-grindingly poor, only the wealthy could buy these things, which were, I remind you, basic gear for working people. Actual working people would either be given these things by their employers as part of their salary, or they would make it themselves in their households. Ignoring the implications of this on the material well-being of poor people in the Middle Ages and how smelly their clothes were, which we have other episodes for you to check out for that, what this tells us is that quote-unquote women's work, like textile manufacturing, was absolutely vital for the economic and indeed physical survival of their family unit. And this is true for pretty much any task you want to assign to women. While men were out there heroically tilling the fields to grow grain that the landlords would steal, women were tending their cottage gardens. While this may sound bucolic, this is where the women grew things like cabbage, turnips, leeks, etc. that the family ate to ensure that their diet consisted of more than just, you know, whatever grain the Lord left them after a year of hard labor. And this was no mean contribution to the family table. For those of you who've never done any gardening before, garden vegetables and fruits can be ludicrously productive in the good months. And they're, of course, extremely nutritious, and some of these items store well in winter months as well. While not as calorie-dense as grain, having things like cabbage in your diet not only serves to bulk up meals, make them more filling, and make them more arguably more tasty, I think I like cabbage, but it also prevents things like scurvy, and if well-prepared, it tastes pretty good. Root vegetables like turnips could actually be fairly calorie-dense, though not as much as grain, and their greens are actually quite nutritious. 
And of course, we always think about people in the Middle Ages eating these bland, horrible diets. And while that was arguably true in late winter and early spring, herbs were there. And they're really easy to grow. Even I can grow them. And I've been killing things for like three years straight since we got a yard. While not particularly nutritious or calorie intense, herbs make food taste like things and not the same thing every day, which is really an important point when you're eating seasonally available foods. Like, you know, you can go through two weeks when you're eating seasonal foods where you're eating a whole huge amount of the same thing over and over again. Having a couple different herbs to mix and match in there can make a huge difference. And then in the winter, where you're pretty much just eating cabbage and grain, the herbs make a big difference. Now, there were many families in medieval villages who only had enough land for their garden, and they were able to survive as seasonal laborers on the production of their garden and with whatever money or goods they could earn from their neighbors as uh, temporary laborers or seasonal laborers and things like that. So, again, the quote-unquote women's work is actually fairly important to the economy and the survival of people. Childcare is, as many of you know now... Massively time-consuming and vitally important to, you know, keeping your childs alive. Paying for that service in the Middle Ages was done by wealthier peasants, but it required hiring a servant, and doing that would require making space for them in the house, feeding them, and buying or making clothes for them, and we already discussed what a nightmare that could be from a financial standpoint for the average medieval family. Children could be left with older relatives, neighbors, or children... Um, or they could be allowed to free range in the village in an era before cars. But leaving children unattended could have tragic consequences. So childcare, not a mean consideration. And all of this is to say that even if women were strictly relegated to inside work, that doesn't mean that the tasks didn't have economic importance. On the contrary, the medieval economy, such as it was, would have collapsed immediately without this labor. The fact that it was not given a monetary value was down to, first of all, there just not being enough money in the economy to permit these goods and services to be derived, at least in the majority of cases, from outside sources. We buy our fruits and vegetables now because we can afford to pay for it. Second, the tasks given to women were those with less perceived social value and importance. Like, grain production and stabbing people were seen as important and heroic, and so men got to do that. Well, women got to do all the stuff men didn't want to do. As we will see, it was sometimes argued that this was because they were so weak and stupid, but that's almost totally ridiculous, as we will see in a bit. The second problem with the traditional narrative of inside and outside work being assigned to women and men is that, while these divisions did exist across Europe, the specific tasks assigned were not universally the same, and often they changed with time. For example, in many places textile work was usually a task for women, but as long-distance trade increased and textiles began to grow into a real industry, the guilds in several towns and cities began trying to restrict the access of women to this industry. In other words, as the industry became more economically important, men stepped in and eventually shoved the women out. This happened in a variety of industries across Europe. Sometimes there was a pretext that the work wasn't suitable for women, such as when the Paris Bakers Guild said that their weak, delicate limbs couldn't handle all the kneading. Having had a French grandmother, this is absurd and ridiculous and makes me angry. But luckily that attempt was overturned, uh, interestingly enough. The uh, city leaders didn't let that guild regulation go through. Sometimes there were genuine labor protection concerns, as in London and Bristol, where guildmasters in the fulling and other textile industries started setting up what we could only call primitive sweatshops. They would hire dozens of young female apprentices who were, of course, paid less than their male counterparts. They would be worked extremely hard on physically demanding but low-skill aspects of the trade in basically just a normal house, just a room in a normal house. They weren't fit to purpose. 
Most problematically, these large groups of women and girls had little hope of ever advancing in the guild structure, not necessarily because of their gender, as we'll see later, but just due to the sheer numbers being employed. And having apprentices who have no hope of becoming masters seriously undermines the point of the guild system. As a result, several English guilds restricted apprenticeships to the wives or daughters of guild masters, thus hopefully ending the practice described. While the protection of working standards and the ensuring of job security is you know, kind of a laudable goal, it's also clear that this is a case of gender discrimination. For example, maybe if the guild just banned paying girls less than boys, it wouldn't have been such a problem. We'll get back to the pay gap in a few minutes. Podcast footnote. The guild masters, of course, immediately set about trying to subvert the new rules. They did this by trying to claim that their new apprentice was actually their, uh, niece, second cousin, their uncle's goddaughter, and so on. This was cracked down upon eventually, but this starts to get us into proto-labor relations issues in the proto-industrial revolution, and that's proto-another show. End podcast footnote. This process of inconsistency in gendered work, and male appropriation when it suited them, makes clear the most damning issue in terms of this gendered division of labor concept. You see, these rules were actually, you know, more like guidelines. While women weren't supposed to do heavy farm work, that didn't mean they couldn't. So when it was the difference between starving to death and getting the crops in, of course the women helped with farming, even the heavy stuff. And when hiring a woman was the difference between getting the crops in and having them rot in the field, landowners did that too. Historians have known this for years. Even my oldest secondary sources note that women helped out during the sowing and harvest time. We know this because we have some direct literary testimony from later sources like Pierce Plowman, but more directly and more tragically, in the form of coroner records showing upticks in the death of children during harvest time. Like I said, there are some risks to having elderly relatives and other kids watch your younger kids. Sometimes they didn't do a very good job. But with the women out helping the men bring in the crops, families had to do what they had to do. If the family had only young children, things got even more dangerous because they would have to bring them out to the fields with them. And, you know, it can be pretty precarious to be doing heavy farm work with a baby strapped to you. And if that baby were to fall, it had all sorts of opportunities to be crushed by the oxen or killed by in any number of horrible ways that a small, delicate infant can be killed by sharp blades, heavy flails, large farm animals, etc., etc., if children were left at home without supervision, or if the supervision there fell asleep or wandered away, untended fires could often burn them. This is very tragic, but the point is that it shows that women were working during harvest time and during the sowing. So it's been known for like decades and decades and decades that women were helping with the harvest, but historians have been taking more looks at things like payroll records of manors that have survived and things like that then they found that women doing farm work was far more than just a thing for special occasions. In very poor families, or in families where the father had died, or even just in situations where a young woman had not yet started a family, women could and did see work as agricultural laborers. While the self-image of the Middle Ages is one of semi-independent peasants owning their land under the protection of the nobles, the reality was that the rural economy required a lot of labor, and an unknown and probably unknowable proportion of the rural population made their living this way, doing work on other people's lands as seasonal or even long-term non-owning laborers. Some of them rented their lands, but a, a lot of them just worked as laborers. The largest employers were, of course, the nobility, who had their own private fields in addition to the lands that they rented to the landed peasants. On these domain lands, much of the work was done by serfs fulfilling their labor dues. But just as often it seems the lord would, you know, I, was, I'm, I don't have quite enough serfs this time, so they'll hire a landless peasant to do the work for them. 
and they needed shepherds and people to tend livestock and people to plow and spread manure on the fields and sow and weed and harvest and milk, etc., etc., etc. And the Lord's not doing all this stuff. He's got to go do dangerous sports. For that matter, most of the wealthy peasants could be put in the same bag. And even if they weren't off performing dangerous sports, what's one more person in this picture? So landless people could certainly be find enough work to keep themselves employed for most of the year, though it was certainly not the life that anyone in the Middle Ages would voluntarily choose for themselves, and it could be precarious during bad times. The thing we learned, though, is that women did all this work. We have records from noble households of women being paid to plow, to weed, to harvest, everything, up to and including the manure. Except, of course, that they got paid less than men, because of course they did. To address the 500-pound gorilla in the room, yes, all this tracks very neatly with modern debates about women in the workforce. No, I'm not talking about this to push a fem feminist agenda. And while my sources undoubtedly have a feminist lens, particularly The Fourth Estate by Dr. Shahar, they also brought together a fairly convincing quantity of research on wages from manorial records across Western Europe. So this isn't just them talking. As a result, we can pretty cleanly say that a single mother raising a family in the Middle Ages in a rural village was not sitting at home doing embroidery and wishing that she could get help because she was starving. She was out on the Lord's domain, running a plow and getting paid half as much as a man would, depending on the location and the time period. And while the evidence of a pay cap is less clear in urban areas, tasks involved in that case, as we will discuss in a few minutes, the behavior of the people involved does suggest that there was a pay gap in the urban areas as well. Podcast footnote. Interestingly, none of my sources go very deeply into why the women were paid less, because their sources are in turn mostly dry financial records. As historians, it would undoubtedly be unprofessional to speculate on this, though it does leave the reader with the impression that the landlord was out there, twirling his mustache, paying women less because he wants their families to starve, and because he just hates women so much. Although Dr. Shahar does fill in some of the gaps, there is sort of this void left in the discussion. As a non-professional historian, permit me a moment of speculation, based on my readings of primary sources, some of the sources provided by Dr. Shahar and the others. It is unlikely that the landlord ever gave much thought to gendered pay rates, if the landlord even directly managed that kind of thing at all. But there was probably a perception that women could not do as good a job as men did due to their physical weakness. One would hope that this would limit pay discrepancies to heavy agricultural tasks, but Dr. Shahar makes sure to note that this was also true of more traditionally feminine agricultural tasks like milking cows and gathering grain. There is even some written evidence that to male overseers on how to manage the female milkmaids versus the male ones, which tends to go along with the concept that women were mentally weak as well as physically weak. That evidence was not from Dr. Shahar's book, it was from the primary source book. Women in the Middle Ages. I had details of this a couple episodes back. Needless to say, if all this can be taken as representative, women were hired last, paid less. And while the people involved probably had their justifications outside of pure malice, that doesn't necessarily make them less misogynistic. End podcast footnote. Women in urban areas faced a different set of challenges and opportunities, depending on their class. In many ways, they were better off, but that statement is very much subject to a person's class within the urban area and geographic location. Women of the urban upper classes in Italy were, for example, probably the worst off of any of the groups of women I have studied, as classical Greek and Roman legal structures were being reimposed in this area later in the Middle Ages, but I will get back to them in a few minutes. Let's start by talking about quote-unquote normal people. As we discussed last time out, household servants came in all shapes, sizes, and genders. 
In rural areas, they were often kids from a nearby village in a kind of apprenticeship, and that happened in urban areas as well. Uh, and we're talking particularly about Northern Europe with this. Just as likely, they were poor people trying to just make a living. They could be horribly treated, and some of them were actually slaves, particularly in Southern Europe, but there were jobs here for both men and women. While there were definitely some jobs that were men-only, like I've never heard of a woman who managed the stables, most jobs could be done by whomever. Some jobs were preferable to have for women. For example, the maids who helped clean the bedroom of the employer would have to interact on a fairly intimate level with the woman of the house. And so a male servant doing this job would be a potentially suspicious subject. These women also helped the wife with textile production tasks, and in wealthy families, this could be as much a social and managerial process as it was about the actual production of goods. We learn about this mostly from male commentators complaining about it and saying that the women were all gossiping and wasting their time over their sewing. I can imagine that if I were matron of a household, such sessions would actually have been a fairly important time for me to gather information about how the household was running, assign tasks to my more trusted uh, underlings, and help build up the loyalty of the staff. But then, you know, mere silly women couldn't have thought of such big thoughts by themselves, could they? Podcast footnote. One very special kind of servant existed in the Middle Ages that we no longer really have, the wet nurse. When we hear that term used, we tend to sort of think, well, so if you know the term, uh, a wet nurse is a woman who is lactating and nurses someone else's child and is paid for that service. Amongst the nobility, this person would usually live in the household, and the practice in some stages in some areas of Europe got to be so common that noble women almost never actually nursed their own children. This kind of thing has actually mostly gone away due to the commercial production of baby formula and due to the availability of breast pumps and refrigerated storage. In any case, the wet nurse thing was also done amongst commoners, but the practice kind of has a dark side. First of all, why was the woman lactating? she had to have given birth recently. Many wet nurses are noted as having recently lost their child, a common enough situation in the Middle Ages, but this is far from the majority of cases. Particularly amongst the wet nurses for commoners, who were paid less, the babies would often have to share the attention of the lactating woman, and if things were running dry, the woman was expected to give preference to her employer's child. Whether or not you think that that actually happened is up to you. Let's just say that this issue would have had an impact on the survival rates of the wet nurse's own child and the survival rates of their client. Things get worse. In many cases, but as a rule in Southern Europe, the baby and the wet nurse would actually not take up residence in the wealthy family's household. The Italians, rightly, considered that the countryside was more of a hygienic environment in which to raise a child, and so the biological family would provide food and money and send their baby to live with the wet nurse miles away in the countryside in whatever creepy rural hovel she came out of. So while living in the countryside may have been vaguely more hygienic, given what we've spoken about in this show about public health conditions in cities, it's not like this kid was living in a villa out in the countryside. The kid was living in some sort of rural poverty shack around animals, which isn't necessarily the safest thing either. And if the supply of food and money were not generous enough, it could further decrease survival rates for the children involved. And overall, the, the children who were raised by wet nurses actually had a fairly bad survival rate, according to several of my sources, which is tragic-hilarious. After the child had passed the years of highest danger, they would be brought back to live in, with their biological parents. 
Dr. Shahar notes that these Italian families, having not spent many years with their child, who was being raised by someone else, would proceed to dote on them for the rest of their childhood. And, you know, this may have been a psychological reaction to that earlier phase. She also draws attention to the irony that Southern European people who traveled to Northern Europe and observed the Northern European practice of sending their kids away to be apprentices or to live in another family's household uh, as a servant or something like that. Uh, Southern Europeans were scandalized by that, and they thought that the Northern Europeans didn't love their kids. Well, it doesn't seem like the Northern Europeans had an equal and opposite reaction to the wet nurse thing, possibly because something that was sometimes done in Northern Europe. I think she and I would both point out that modern families would, of course, find this whole idea of sending your infant child out into the countryside to be raised by strangers without your direct supervision kind of horrific as well. All of this seems sort of horribly inhuman to, to modern eyes. That said, after several months of coronavirus lockdown, I tend to be sympathetic to both systems. End podcast footnote. So, this picture of urban servant work is not all that different from what we saw in the countryside, and we can probably assume something similar for generically poor urban laborers. Poor families could not afford to have people not working, so poor urban women would be contributing to the family income in some way, shape, or form. In areas where textile work was considered a feminine task and was available, women would certainly be doing that in the home if they could afford the space and the equipment. But you also find women serving as laborers in any kind of menial task. Uh, I don't remember seeing as comprehensive a comparison of wage rates in urban settings as I did in rural ones, but I do know that there is evidence of some wage discrepancies there as well. Um, the picture is more complex due to the specialized nature of some household work, such as the domestic servant stuff we just discussed. So don't take this statement as gospel, but I think it's a reasonable assumption given what I will shortly be saying about the guild system. Where gender in urban areas gets really interesting is for the women working as entrepreneurs, or in what we might call the trades, or the urban middle classes. It was entirely normal for women of lower ranks in society to be out in the street selling things. The poorest women were, of course, selling themselves, but other women sold vegetables and agricultural goods that they bought off farmers in the countryside or other knickknacks and odds and ends. They would, you know, just find a spot on the street, plop their stuff down, and start trying to sell it to people. Their attempts to attract customers by shouting and engaging in loud banter was often scornfully commented on in the records, but this was definitely a way to make ends meet. Interestingly, women often dominated the water-carrying trade, which is to say that they would pump water or take it from a well, put it in jars, and carry it to your house. Have you ever lifted a container of water? It's not light. Women's work. For urban women, who were a little better off, it was still entirely normal for them to engage in work, particularly in a skilled trade. The most common version of this that we see is women learning a skill from their father or husband and then helping out in the family business. Indeed, we have letters that note that the trade skills of a particular girl are an important consideration in the arrangement of her marriage. But many guilds actually allowed girls to be taken on as apprentices, and there were some guilds composed exclusively of women. Whatever the stage of life at which a woman learned her trade, sh we shouldn't think of them as just managing the books or running the front of the house, though definitely that just happened. When you take all the evidence into account, the inescapable conclusion is that the women were actually doing trades. They were making stuff in the family business. They were manufacturing goods and then selling them to their customers. 
Guild regulations are a key part of the evidence here. Now, all of this varied by time and place and the different guilds, but it was fairly common, in general, that a woman could inherit not only their husband's business, in terms of the physical goods in the shop, but also in terms of his guild membership and status. This meant that in some guilds, a woman who was the wife of a master could not only continue to manage the journeymen who were doing much of the work, she could take on and train apprentices and make saleable items herself. Again, this is not universal. Many guilds allowed for women to complete the training of current apprentices and current journeymen, but not take on new ones. Some banned women from inheriting the title at all. Of the ones that did allow women to gain master status, some of them did not allow them to attend guild meetings, but some of them did. But by that same token, some guilds didn't even require a husband at all. Women could just become apprentices, become journeymen, and become masters in their own right, full stop. Sometimes they had to apprentice with other women in order to maintain propriety, but there are plenty of cases where guilds let little boys and little girls apprentice with men and women interchangeably. On the top end of the socioeconomic spectrum, when you're talking about the really ultra-wealthy merchant families, women are less obvious in the records as merchants themselves, uh, and there's probably a couple reasons for that. For security and propriety reasons, women probably wouldn't have been engaged in actually undertaking long journeys themselves as merchants. But then many of the wealthy merchant families worked using agents anyway. So this might not have been a problem, and what we do see is that, while not exactly common, there are some examples of extremely powerful and wealthy women who worked as merchants under their own name in the Middle Ages. Uh, notably, we have that uh, Jewish merchant woman who was so rich that she got the king to let her keep a Christian houseboy. All this makes a person wonder how many of the major merchant families were actually being run in some fashion by women from behind the scenes, but again, we, we can have no evidence of that kind of thing. All of this is to say that while women were usually unable to go into business for themselves as single women, I'm just going to go train to be a bronze smith. Yeah, so that kind of thing was a little bit rare. Some were able to do that kind of thing, or they were able to get financial assistance from their husband in setting up their business, or they got the training from their husband and just joined his business, or from their father, that kind of thing. While most women of this class worked in the family business, even to the point of doing work in the trade itself, some took on managerial roles in running the business and took over the business on the death of the male head of household. If there were no adult sons, the widow had the choice of remaining single or remarrying, and there were a variety of legal implications. Suffice it to say that many chose to remain single after the death of their spouse, and, as a result, were able to operate for many years as their own boss. There were a lot of incentives for remaining single as a woman of this particular class. It is worth saying that this existence could be precarious. Guild regulations included provisos that any person's status in the guild could be revoked if they lost their good reputation, and the implementation of this could be arbitrary and extortionate even for male masters. For women, implications of sexual impropriety have always been easy for people to believe and nearly impossible to disprove. My research hasn't shown how common this kind of oppression was, and the functional goal of guilds as mutual aid societies taking care of each other's widows might have served as a deterrent for this kind of behavior. Still, we do know women were, on occasion at least, kicked out of guilds for what we might call spurious reasons, and so the possibility was there. So, for most of European society, there really was no option to women doing work, and in the true urban middle classes, it was common to the point of ubiquitousness. So that does kind of beg the question, where do our ideas about gendered work roles come from? Well, it's time to talk about the ultra-wealthy urbanites and the nobility. I started off this section earlier by mentioning the wealthy merchant families of Italy, so let's go back there. 
As we'll discuss in later episodes, around the year 1000 or so, the classical legal traditions of Greece and Rome started to become revived in Italy. And as we sort of discussed a few episodes back, those legal codes were not great towards women. The result was that women were deprived of many rights of inheritance and independence that were granted to women in many other places in Europe, and which, to be honest, they had been enjoying for a couple centuries at that point in Italy. In addition to the legal issues, which we're going to talk about more next time, in Italy, this inst the institution of the dowry became particularly pernicious as a result of the economic expansion creating a, a heavy amount of inflation over the course of several decades in this period. Causes of this are numerous uh, beyond just the good economic conditions for Italian cities. We're talking about things that are very specific to the social conditions of Italy. Part of what allowed this economic expansion to happen was a series of commercial alliances between merchant families that helped bind these societies together. So the impact of all this on women in other classes was probably less severe, even though inflation of dowries was certainly happening in other classes. For wealthy Italian women, it was very, very heavy, which meant that getting married and having daughters as children were uh, really serious commercial issues that people needed to consider. Given the amount of economic resources being sunk into this, you could view this whole situation as the men involved very much had lots of incentives to uh, try and protect their investments. As a result, from a legal standpoint, wealthy Italian women were very much restricted to their homes, which they were responsible for running, but without much power over the decisions that influenced that responsibility. A classic bureaucrat's nightmare. And unlike when I am given a Kobayashi Maru assignment, women in Italy had a boss who was allowed to physically beat and occasionally murder them if he didn't like the decisions they made. I should hasten to add here that mistreating your wife was not a great strategy when you're trying to use your marriage to cement an alliance with your in-laws, or to get yourself an heir for that matter. And the density of religious organizations in Italy did allow for a fair amount of crisis sheltering and emergencies, which we do have evidence of from a variety of sources. Still, it's a horrible situation if the husband in question turned out to be a monster, and honestly not one that any modern person would pick for themselves, even if the couple got along. The women of the upper classes in Northern Europe had more freedom and power, at least on paper. But on a practical day-to-day -day level, it's not clear to me that the difference was anything more than a matter of degree. Behavior manuals, which I should say uh, are from a later period, so take this with a grain of salt. But these manuals make it clear that going outside, even to go to church, was something that needed to be done with trusted escorts. While it wasn't illegal, only lower-class women with bad reputations did things like work in public trade stalls or, horror of horrors, sell produce on the street. People could see them existing. They might as well be prostitutes. Indoors, the wife had more control over household management decisions like the hiring and firing of servants than was theoretically true in Italy. But one does need to question all sides of this comparison. On the one hand, we have letters between Italian women and their husbands showing that the merchant class men were often away from home, leaving women in charge of affairs, and with the husband asking the wife to manage certain things that, legally speaking, she actually didn't have the authority to oversee. Under the legal codes, women were considered children and not able to make purchasing decisions, but clearly women were making purchasing decisions because we have letter evidence of it, and really what else were they going to do? 
On the other hand, Northern European men probably had not granted women these legal, limited freedoms out of the kindness of their hearts. Returning to the manuals again, the goal of the wife was always to please her husband, and so granting her more power in a context where the man had important out-of-the-house man stuff to do simply served to allow the wife more flexibility in pleasing her man, and so that he could more effectively focus on said man stuff when he was not in the house and not worry about having to make decisions about the draperies and things like that. At least until the draperies bothered him, and then he could always blame the wife for making the wrong choice. Nice how that works out. In theory, similar rules applied to the nobility, except more so. Servants prepared food and saw to important matters. There was often a chamberlain or butler who oversaw day-to-day operations in the house, so women often theoretically had very little to do. Rather than doing even household management tasks, women of the nobility, and indeed many of their wealthy urban noble lessers, were expected to keep themselves occupied by studying religion and praying and stuff, but then, most importantly, working on their ability to be entertaining to men. The behavior manuals include examples of games that they can play during parties, instructions on singing and dancing in a manner that was pleasant but not untoward, and recipes for them to hand off to the servants, and just generally set themselves up to be perfect hostesses. So what does this tell us about this concept of gendered work? Well, to some extent, what it says is that these concepts of gendered work are a relic of the fact that most of our literary records pertaining to women were composed by the nobility and the ultra-wealthy in books written by noble or wealthy men. These individuals did not need the economic activity of their women to survive. They had servants for that. While members of the nobility certainly wanted to be taken care of physically, they had servants for most of that. What was important to them was that they have legitimate heirs, family alliances, and a good reputation amongst their peers. Women who behaved poorly in public were a threat to all of that. The men certainly recognized that women could do stuff for them that was good. The handbooks made for the urban nobility and the urban uh, upper classes focus on the serenity of domestic bliss when the partners in a marriage get along and the woman runs to greet her man when he comes home and takes off her husband's boots, plops him in front of a roaring fire, and then brings him a warm drink on a cold day. In some respects, this is at least somewhat more relatable than the works of the nobility, who seem to view noble women as only necessary but annoying potential threats to their reputations. At least the fantasies of the bourgeoisie are relatable. Who doesn't like a big roaring fire and warm drinks? But at the end of the day, no matter which manuals you read, the ones of the nobility or the ones of the upper urban classes, all of this is evidence of male fantasies rather than necessarily, strictly speaking, male female realities. The men have this fantasy of having women behave in ways that make them kind of a human ornament. And I think ultimately this is the way I have most clearly come to see this kind of social role. These families had all the money they needed. Having a woman whose only job was to not work and just hang around, pleasing her husband, well, that's a mark of social status. That's a mark of wealth. They could afford to have someone who just did nothing all day, and the male fantasy of having her behave that way was a kind of conspicuous consumption that solidified the social status of the men in her life. At the end of the day, though, this was more fantasy than reality. I mean, no, Eleanor of Aquitaine never dabbled in iron mining as a hobby, but then iron mining was not the family business of the Aquitaine clan. Politics, social control, real estate, domination, war, these were the true economic functions of the nobility, and regardless of what the men thought, the women of the nobility ended up participating in these roles anyway, at least to some extent. Ironically, the reasons for this begin with the men. 
While the men of the lower classes lived hard and sometimes violent lives, the men of the nobility would do things like hit each other with swords for fun. And when they couldn't do that, they would go into the forest with a bunch of people, some of whom were personal enemies, and try and find large dangerous creatures to stab. And then they weren't doing all that. They were often out on military campaigns, sleeping in camps without sanitation, eating food that was of questionable quality. Even when they were home, they would basically spend huge portions of their time binge drinking. Meanwhile, they encouraged women to do dangerous things like needlepoint, singing, and line dancing as pastimes. These pastimes were done in living spaces kept scrupulously clean, presumably, by servants, and at the very least, most of the animals were kept far out of the sight, with the possible exception of the family dogs, who helped clean up the trash. The net result of all this was that noble women lived longer than men. Like, to an absurd degree. I'm pretty sure I read that they lived 25% longer, but uh, don't quote me on that. I haven't been able to find it in my sources when I've gone back and looked for it. So what all my sources do agree on is that they lived a bunch longer. And even if the man had not managed to get himself killed yet, he was still likely to be away from the house quite a bit. What this means in practice varied greatly by region, but inevitably the result was to break down the strictest interpretations of behavior for women in the period. In general, a widow was given protected status by the church and by the local authorities, who were supposed to protect her interests. In situations where there was a male heir, this meant that the family's lands were supposed to be left intact until the young man could safely inherit, with some financial provision made for the wife eventually, as you would for an invalid. When there wasn't a male heir and when there were female heirs, things got extremely complicated very quickly, but those are all issues we need to save for the legal episode. The point for today is this. How were the estates managed in the meantime? In previous ages, like in the classical age, it would always be under the management of a male relative. In Southern Europe, in the Middle Ages, it was relatively common for male relatives to become involved, helping the widow manage the estate, and disputes in these situations were generally presented to church courts, which did offer the widow at least some semblance of impartiality. Later on, it became more likely that the liege lord of the husband would be sent in to protect the widow, something that tended to reduce rather than improve accountability. Anyway, we'll get to this all more later. The point is that, in reality, we just as often see the widows holding out, playing different interested groups off each other, and retaining direct local control. Particularly in the early part of the Middle Ages in Italy, we saw quite a number of very impressive female leaders and rulers who managed to, for example, rule Rome for a couple generations. Nonetheless, such forceful women would fade in Italy as time went on and as the legal system strengthened and the city-states centralized their governments. Women would be forced to join the households of their relatives or their lord, and they were often pressured into remarriage. Those who did not want to remarry were offered the convent as their only alternative. In Northern Europe, things were a bit different. Not a lot different, but a bit different. Nobles in the South lived in cities, where women were subject to strong social pressures. In the North, the nobles settled on isolated estates in the countryside, far away from courts and peer pressure and the Roman legal system, and help. While women were still subject to protection by the church, their families, and their lords, women were also expected to represent their husband's interests when he was away by, you know, getting involved with managing household tasks. Uncle What's-His-Face couldn't pop down to help manage the estate every time the husband went off on campaign because he had his own estate to manage, and that was far. So, as a result, women ended up getting involved in managing the estates and organizing for its defense which gave them a hold on power. 
Now, the woman of the estate wouldn't be out there in armor or anything, but as I've said many times in this show, conflict in the Middle Ages was always half physical force and half negotiation, and women were just as capable as men as sending the household knights out to burn an enemy's countryside while petitioning for a court date. More commonly, and despite laws to the contrary, which were often repeated, women would preside over manor courts, though sometimes they used a proxy. In practice, this meant that they were exercising legal judgment over men, mostly their peasants, but sometimes people of a more noble background. This was technically illegal, but they did it anyway. And they definitely made decisions about things like animal husbandry, planting times, and the other minutiae of estate management. At a basic level, that stuff, the stuff that actually underpinned the value of a noble family's lands, was often considered an aspect of the woman's realm, no matter what was going on with the men in her life. If the estate was the household, making decisions about agriculture was just like a peasant woman managing the family's kitchen garden. But when the kitchen garden is an estate, that puts many of the tools of power into the hands of the women. So when the patriarch of a noble house in Northern Europe died on campaign, that didn't necessarily change much right away. It just meant that the lord of the house would be away a little while longer, while the heir grew up a bit, or stuff like that. Sure, a widow was often seen as vulnerable by unfriendly neighbors, and there was often a danger of kidnapping and forced marriages, but at the same time they had possession of the estates, and in the Middle Ages, possession was more than nine-tenths of the law. Possession was the law, until someone came and dragged you away by the hair. Noble women ruling entirely without men were not common in any part or place in the Middle Ages. In Northern Europe, a wife of a noble house had more autonomy, at least until the nobles began to migrate into the cities. But the widow was like a bison amongst wolves. If she played her cards right, she could retain her independence, but many chose to remarry, a choice that conveyed a lot of physical safety, but which surrendered huge amounts of autonomy. Even the choice of marriage partner was often made by others, as we will see in the next episode. In any case, and despite the antics of the men, it's worth reminding ourselves that most women at any given time weren't widows. All the same, the image of women of the Middle Ages sitting at home all day singing hymns and practicing party games was definitely a male fantasy that ignored reality. Noble women had practical political power, though it was heavily circumscribed to the management of their estates, and many widows in Northern Europe made the choice to remain unmarried. While the ostentatiously wealthy of the cities and the most high visibility of noble families often stuck assiduously to the image of virtuous female lethargy as a show of wealth and power, and while the church enforced such standards on nuns, most women in the nobility had at least some hand in the management of their households, a thing which gave them real potential political power over the peasants in their lands. And the lucky few were able to live at least some portion of their lives as local powers in their own right. There is one last point to make before we start to wrap up our discussion of women, particularly in the nobility and the urban upper classes. One of the implications of the sort of mainstream image of female lethargy and gendered work roles in the Middle Ages is that it was, until the 1970s, this image was explicitly carried into economic histories of the Middle Ages by historians. This view said that because women were just sitting at home knitting doilies, they had no agency, and they were basically in economic ghosts. They had no role in the economy because they had no protagonism. As a result, serious-minded man-history people didn't need to talk about women in the economy in their books. But I think if you look at the evidence, this kind of ignores a lot of the implications of what we read in the, the primary source documents. Like, if you read medieval chroniclers, they, of course, avoid talking about women as much as they can because they're monks. And when they do, they do so only to criticize them. 
criticize them, they do, but often they're criticizing them as vapid, materialistic, desirous of worldly goods, cosmetics, etc. Yes, this is a misogynistic complaint as old as time. It is also, one, deeply hypocritical, and two, revealing of the economic importance of women in the Middle Ages. In terms of hypocrisy, medieval men loved them some fancy silk garments and jewelry and tableware. In some places, cosmetics as well. But more importantly, the women were only doing their assigned job. While the noble men of the Middle Ages were often engaged in dangerous sports and stealing stuff from peasants, the noble women were managing the household, like the men demanded that they do. So men, you want women to make the household comfortable and well-run and make themselves physically desirable but not too much? And ensure the family has a good reputation? Well, okay. This is an era where displays of wealth are seen as signs of status. Modest but fashionable clothing required lots of fabric, as do the draperies and the tapestries that kept the households warm in the days before central heating. Furniture had to be built or purchased, and plates had to be acquired for the serving of food. It just won't do to not have proper plates. It'll ruin the family's reputation. And the servants had to be dressed sensibly. And yes, if you demand physical attractiveness from women as an aspect of what gives them value in your medieval society, you probably shouldn't be surprised when they buy cosmetics. And so all that is to say that, one, while this isn't necessarily always coming from the same person, male criticisms of noble women for caring about the things that male society told them to care about, pretty annoying to me, and more importantly, too... It was the women making many of the purchasing decisions that helped push the medieval economy into gear. Much of the fancy food and cosmetics that they were being criticized for asking for had to be imported, as did the nicer fabrics and even many of the plates. But even more humdrum bulk goods were important. I noted at the beginning of this episode how expensive a change of clothes could be. Well, it wasn't the peasants paying retail prices for those clothes. They couldn't afford it. They made stuff at home or they went without. It was the nobles who purchased those outfits for their staff, a collective decision that may have helped turn Flanders, an area initially known only for producing extremely uncomfortable cheap woolen garments, into becoming an economic epicenter, as they started selling those uncomfortable woolen garments to noble families across the region, and then eventually parlayed that into making less uncomfortable woolen garments. Similar demands in areas like pottery and carpentry pushed other areas into becoming other epicenters of different economic markets. And basically all these industries were things where demand for household goods from noble families drove the development of specialization and trade in these different industries, and a lot of these decisions probably were being made by women. These women were making these decisions to fulfill their assigned social roles and make their men happy, and all for which they were endlessly criticized by male clerics and armchair home economists alike. Beyond their power as household managers and consumers, women were out there in the workforce. They made clothing, sure, but they also did leatherwork, goldsmithing, pottery. We even have at least two examples of what might be women working as blacksmiths. So if you name an industry, there were probably women doing it somewhere in Europe. If you walked a medieval street on market day, you would not find the men's club you might have been led to believe by previous generations of historians. Women and men would be on the side streets shouting to passers-by to advertise the produce that they had brought in from the fields or to offer to carry water to people's homes. Customers of both sexes would be perusing their wares. Many of these people would have been servants doing the day's shopping for their mistresses, but some housewives would have ventured to the market themselves, or would walk by it on the way to more prestigious locations, accompanied by their inner circle of body servants, all dressed to the nines, and with a posture that showed them aloof to the fray about them. 
In the main market square, you would find stalls full of merchants and tradesmen selling their wares. The merchant stalls might be a bit more male-dominated, but women for whom the city was their home base would likely have been around, at least, possibly supervising from the back of their shop as their employees negotiated over prices. In the stalls of the tradesmen, you would be just as likely to see tradeswomen up front, chatting with frequent customers or passing friends while they made use of the natural light to manage the books. Others would have been slightly further back in the interior of the shop, using the tools of their trade and the light of a small fire to finish up the next piece while their husband observed. Other women in the market might have been found beating their journeymen, or showing a young apprentice a key trick of the trade while their husband talked to a supplier. In some cases, children would be running around the shop, possibly being shooed away by servants, but in many cases the apprentice would actually be one of the older kids, maybe even a special daughter of the house learning from her dad. In many, if not most, stalls, there would be no husband or father, father visible, either because the couple worked in separate businesses, because the husband had passed, or just because he was out running errands. In such cases, I suspect, a smart businesswoman might have sent out one of the tougher-looking journeymen to stand out front and discourage shoplifting, maybe after he'd been given a, a slight beating to make him look more tough. Another alternative business strategy might have been to send one of the cuter apprentices out to get the attentions of passers-by. You know, having a little kid go, hey, sir, hey, mister, you need one of these. The point of this is not to make the Middle Ages out to be some kind of paradise for women. Far from it. We are not talking about a bunch of medieval girl bosses. In the shadows of the market would be the truly desperate, hoping to find work somewhere, begging or waiting for nightfall to work their trade as illegal prostitutes inside the town wall. Wife-beating and sexual assault was probably very common, though as a rule it was bad form to do it during daylight hours on a market day. Women in the economy of the Middle Ages faced desperate prejudices. For poor people in the countryside, female-led households without adult offspring could be nearly impossible to make sustainable due to the wage disparities, and the same was probably true for poor laborers in towns. Women were paid less, were the last hired and the first fired. Restrictions on propriety limited the scope of activities that women could engage in for the middle and upper classes, which closed off many professions in practical terms. And of course, women were more vulnerable than men to the implications of spurious rumors about their behavior, particularly their sexual behavior. Domestic abuse was rampant, and the society as a whole was much more violent in general, leaving women much more vulnerable to theft, battery, and assault. This was all true in the minds of the people at the time, who tended to view widows as being people particularly in need of care and protection, and it was something that men of the age worried about earnestly. All the same, the Middle Ages wasn't a society of saintly housewives, nor of martyred automatons. Women had a scope for action, and lived in a society that needed their labor. They were not fairly compensated for that labor, and were often little better than slaves to the family unit. But in some cases, women whose aptitudes and personalities happened to dovetail with the conditions permitted by their class and their local society, well, they were able to thrive. In most cases, men were the most direct beneficiaries, and the society was one of grim patriarchy. But it is important to also remember and celebrate that these women were real people and did their best to find fulfillment within their context. Next time out, we will address the legal situation of women in the Middle Ages before finishing this series of episodes up by discussing whether women did in fact constitute a fourth estate. This is all yet to come, and to hear it, you will need to tune in next time to another exciting episode of Wittenberg to Westphalia, The Wars of the Reformation.
Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 